This is a Rooster Teeth production. March 31st, 1995. Tarim Flight 371, an Airbus A310 with 60 people on board, is taking off from Bucharest, Romania, bound for Brussels, Belgium. The weather's not ideal with light snow and low clouds, but the pilots divide up their duties and are confident in their abilities. Shortly after taking off, the plane begins making a planned left turn. However, the plane keeps turning beyond its planned heading. People on the ground report seeing an explosion, and the plane impacts the ground less than two miles from the airport. How does a relatively new modern aircraft with two very experienced pilots crash so quickly after takeoff? Was foul play possibly involved? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. And hello, people listening. Hello, every- hello to, to all, of our, all of our passengers that were taking on a journey with us today. <laughs> Don't forget, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We post uh, supplemental photos, videos, uh, things of that nature. Uh, just things to help you get a better picture in your mind of, of, of what was going on and what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes maybe it's like a very specific part of a plane. Sometimes maybe it's a piece of evidence. Well, not but like a, a very important thing that we talk about. It's just a lot easier to look at if, if you have trouble picturing it um, when we're just talking. It's a good way to interact with us if you want to give us any ideas for things or, or yeah. ask questions or anything like that. Yeah, we have an email address as well, blackboxdownpod at gmail.com. Uh, we've had a, we've had a few questions come in. I think we should sit down sometime and record a, like a little bonus episode where we uh, we go through and we answer some of those. Uh, Got to put that in our to-do lab. We, I think we've all been a little <laughs> busy lately, so we haven't really sat down and, and, and focused on that. But we really need to to sit down and maybe do that soon. So here we are. Today we're talking about Terum Flight 371. Uh, it was an international passenger flight from Bucharest, Romania to Brussels, Belgium, March 31st, 1995. The flight was screwed by Captain Liviu Batanoyu, who was 48 years old with 14,312 flight hours. And First Officer Ionel Stoy, who was 51 years old with 8,988 flight hours. And the plane used was an 8-year-old Airbus A310 with 31,902 hours and 6,216 cycles. There were 8 flight attendants, a company security officer, and 49 passengers on board as well. Total of 60 people. The estimated departure time for this flight was 6 a.m. Universal time, mm-hmm. which is actually 9 a.m. Romanian time. The all the the times on the report, the times from here on out are in Universal time. Just trying to give you a frame of reference. It's actually in Romania. It was three hours later. Okay. During the pre-flight briefing, the captain said standard briefing, right side flying, which you know indicates that the first officer is going to be one flying the plane. You know, right side, like when you're looking, when you walk into the cockpit and you're facing them. The captain always sits on the left and the first officer on the right. So when he says right side flying, it means the first officer. And they announced that to like the flight control and stuff? Oh, no, it's just in, like uh, internal. They're, they're checklists oh. that they run through in the cockpit. Yeah. It's just like part of their briefing when they're when they're going through, you know, the flight and what's going to happen. It's just like, who's going to fly the plane? All right, it's you today. <laughs> just so there's no confusion. A few minutes later, the crew was cleared to start their engines uh, after carrying out de-icing procedures. And they were cleared to taxi as well. And during the taxi, the crew carried out their pre-takeoff procedures, uh, which included making sure the flaps and slats were correct, that the right takeoff speed selected, and that the auto thrust system was also set correctly. So, so this is all standard checklist stuff. Mm-hmm. The flight was then cleared for takeoff at 6.06 a.m., and the flight departed on runway 8 right. During the takeoff, the captain was making the callouts and requested the first officer keep both of his hands on the control wheel, and the captain assumed the position to guard the engine throttle. So... 
he told the first officer, you know, keep your hands on the control and I'm going to, I'll take care of the throttles. You know, he'll keep, he's going to keep it. There's auto throttle, but he's going to keep his hand on the throttle to make sure it's in the correct position. Okay. And they're, and they're not using auto throttle because. Oh, they, they are just the captain keeps his hand. Like a pilot will keep their hands there just to make sure it's in the correct okay. position or in case they need to make a change very quickly. Just to be safe, you yeah. Know, someone keeps their hand on it. Well, it's keeping your hand on the wheel, even if you're going straight. Yeah, I mean, I guess the close analogy would be like, you know, when you put cruise control in your car, you probably keep your foot on the accelerator pedal anyway, right? You yeah. Know, just in case, yeah. You need to break um, or move. Yeah. yeah. So it's just you just keep it there to be safe. After confirming a positive rate of climb, the first officer requested for the landing gear to be raised. Uh, and at 6.07 a.m., the flight was cleared direct to the STJ VOR waypoint. That's just a waypoint, you know, on their way uh, along their route. Mm-hmm. The first officer asked the captain to select that waypoint on the flight management system. And when the captain did this, he requested the first officer to slightly move the control wheel. So, you know, they're talking through, doing all of their all of their pilot stuff, everything that needs to get done. Pretty normal. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm waiting for things to go wrong. <laughs> right, because so far it's all very normal. It seems like nothing, nothing's going on. A few moments later, as the aircraft was turning left and climbing through 2,000 feet at a speed of 188 knots, an engine thrust asymmetry started developing, with a continuous decrease of the left engine thrust at about one degree of thrust resolver angle per second. And we know thrust asymmetry we've talked about before. It's when one engine ha- is giving more thrust than the other. Okay. And in this case, it says the left engine is decreasing ever you know, so slightly, one degree per second on the controls, on that thrust resolver angle, which is like the angle of the thrust lever in relation to the thrust lever system. You know, because, you know, as, as you're changing them, you, know, you, you can picture what they look like, right? It's like those thrust knobs in the middle between the pilots where mm, they push yeah, it yeah. forward and pull yeah. it back. So it's like one degree of change in that per second. And is it, do they have like, it's like two different knobs for each left and right? Correct. One knob for the left and one knob for the right or lever. But you generally, people push them together, right? Unless they're trying to like do some sort of weird turn, right? Yeah, generally. uh, Lots of times in aircraft, there are slight differences in the engines and in the plane. So one might be ever so slightly ahead of the other to maintain Mm -hmm. normal flight, but normally they're very close to each other. So yeah, in in this case, you know, one is sliding back while the other is is maintaining its position. Actually, specifically, the left one is sliding back. Okay. And do you remember what direction they turned before they crashed? Uh, right. It was left. No, oh, I had a fifty fifty shot. <laughs> yeah, which which makes sense. Uh, it, like based on um, just purely based on what we've heard so far, if the right engine's still giving thrust and the left engine's not, then the plane's going to start turning to the left because yeah, it's getting more sense. thrust from the right side. So as the aircraft was passing through 3,060 feet at a speed of 194 knots, the captain drew the attention of the first officer to the speed. Then as the flight was climbing through 3,300 feet at a speed of 195 knots, the first officer called out 250 in sight and asked the captain to retract the flaps, which the captain did. And at this moment, the asymmetry reached 14.5 degrees on the thrust resolver angle. And the difference in EPR, uh, which is like the engine power, basically, was uh, 0.19. So the, the asymmetry starting to really start to exaggerate at this point. Uh-huh. Five seconds after this, the first officer requested that the slats be retracted, but the captain didn't do that. There's like, the slats did not get retracted. And at this time, the aircraft was passing through 3,800 feet and the speed had decreased to 185 knots and the thrust asymmetry was now at 28 degrees and the EPR difference was 0.27. 
At 6.08, the first officer asked the captain if he was all right. As the flight passed through 4,200 feet, the speed was now 181 knots. Mm-hmm. They were still in a left turn, and over the last several seconds, the bank angle decreased from 20 degrees to 17 degrees, but then started increasing and then went back up to 22 degrees. So they're on a bank. It was started decreasing, but uh-huh. then starts increasing more. And you know how this stuff can get out of control very yeah. quickly. And remember, like I said, it was kind of cloudy and snowy. They were in instrument conditions. Like they couldn't see anything. They were flying through clouds. So when you can't see anything, it's very, it's a lot more difficult to figure out when you're banked and how much you're banked. You have to rely on the instruments. And, yeah. you know, all pilots of any airliner you ever get on, they're trained for this. This is very, very, very uh, normal for them. So when this is going on, there's a sound similar to like a groan on oh. the cockpit voice recorder as the flight climbed through 4,460 feet and 179 knots. The flight data recorder then recorded an attempt for a radio transmission, but it couldn't be confirmed from the cockpit voice recorder. Uh-huh. Like a groan, like a he's having a heart attack or something? Or It's really weird. Uh, I watched one of the, the investigators try to recreate the sound in an interview, and he said uh-huh. it was like a, uh. Uh. Okay. Yeah. Uh. yeah. Uh, okay. So then the aircraft climbed through 4,530 feet, and the bank angle increased to 20 degrees. The engine thrust asymmetry reached its almost maximum value being 0.41 EPR. The first officer in a stressed and agitated voice requested for the engagement of autopilot number one Mm -hmm. as the aircraft passed through 4,620 feet. The bank angle kept increasing. It got to 43 degrees and the pitch angle started to steadily decrease. So they're turned 43 degrees and the nose of the plane starts to, the pitch starts to decrease down toward the ground. The flight data recorder then recorded an attempt to engage the autopilot. Uh, the flight was now at an altitude of 4,615 feet with a speed of 191 knots. The thrust asymmetry was at 0.42 EPR, and there was a thrust reduction in the second engine. So the second engine is the one that had been operating you know, uh-huh. correctly the whole time. So the thrust on it was, uh, was reduced. One second after the attempted autopilot engagement, there was a recorded disengagement of the autopilot, followed by an oral warning that lasted several moments. Presumably... The first officer tried to turn the autopilot on. Then after a second, it disengaged and then you know, gave a, an audible warning. Like disengaged on its own? Yes. Because of the circumstances there with them turning and it being like irregular? Presumably, yes. Uh, okay. The plane is in a very unusual attitude at the moment. Things are, are very unusual. It's probably out of the, um, the, sa- the, the envelope that the uh, autopilot wants to operate in. And from this point on, the aircraft's attitude was constantly degrading. The flight started diving and increasing speed, and the report notes that the aircraft performed a complete rotation around its roll axis. So what you would consider like a barrel roll. Uh, I was about to say they did a barrel roll? Yes, I think it's not. So a barrel roll is a very specific Uh maneuver. They didn't actually do a barrel. This is something most people would call a barrel roll. Technically, it's not actually a barrel roll. I just want to make that distinction. Okay. The last recorded radar altitude showed the plane at an altitude of 4,400 feet. And on the next radar sweep, the aircraft transponder gave a partial answer, providing only the aircraft code and call sign with no altitude information. The first officer at this time cried out, that one has failed without any other comments. Oh. The aircraft is now descending through 3,600 feet at a speed of 258 knots with a nose down pitch of 61.5 degrees. So they're really, really... yeah. Uh, pitched down. And they weren't that high up, right? You said Mm-mm. they're only like eight or 9,000 feet? Not even. At most, I think they got to like 4,600, 4,800, oh. somewhere in that, in that range. 
Uh, I think 4620 actually is the highest that they got. Two unidentified consecutive noises were then recorded as the aircraft descended through 2,900 feet at a speed of 293 knots and a nose down pitch angle of 83 degrees. So 83 degrees, that's almost straight nose down. 90 degrees would be straight nose down. So 83 is almost directly nose down into the ground. Yeah, that's like straight down. I mean, that's that seems difficult to do if, even if you're trying to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've heard um, from acrobatic pilots. You know, acrobatic pilots do a lot of training for unusual, you know, attitudes in a plane. I've heard from acrobatic pilots that it's very difficult to actually nose straight down 90 degrees. Your body plays, and your senses play tricks on you that, you know, you think that, your nose down when you're at about 60 degrees uh-huh. and that when you are actually at 90 degrees nose down, it feels like you're inverted. So yeah, it's terrifying, I think. And it's very difficult to actually get a plane to nose down to 90 degrees. And you know, they weren't at 90, they were at 83, which is pretty, pretty close to that. Yeah. The first officer then cried out and the aircraft hit the ground at 6.08 and 34 seconds. The last recorded parameters were a nose down attitude at about a 50 degree pitch angle with both engines at idle power. The captain never said anything else besides the groan? The, nothing else was heard. Remember, and he had been very involved. Uh-huh. And then, you know, he the, the first officer asked for the slats to be retracted and there was no response. Then you hear the first officer ask, are you okay? Uh-huh. And then, yeah, there was, there was nothing else. Only 36 seconds had passed since the first officer asked the captain to retract the slats and 32 seconds from when the first officer asked the captain if he was all right. Uh, so even that, you know, that had just happened a few seconds before the plane crashed. That's crazy how fast things went poorly. Mm-hmm. Well, know. they weren't, they didn't have very much altitude. You know, they yeah. weren't very high off the ground. Over the next few minutes, air traffic control and other flights tried to contact Tarim 371 without success. The aircraft was completely destroyed due to the violence of the impact, and everyone on board was killed. At 613, Bucharest approach declared that RESFA, which is a, a civil aviation organization code word used to indicate a distress phase. And all measures taken by air traffic control from that moment were in compliance with the approved search and rescue plan. So, yeah, I mean, that that's from the outside and I guess from a little from the inside, that's that's what happened. It was so quick. Everything happened. You know, the final portion of the flight happened within seconds, but the entire flight itself was just a couple of minutes, maybe, you know, if that. Yeah. And I guess and you might get into this, but airplanes don't have like a... Uh, health or you know monitors or heart monitors or anything like that do they you know like no no nothing that that intense yeah i mean if nowadays it seems like it could be really easily done because you know people have it on their their watches and you know it's yeah i mean i think that you know even if well speaking from a modern perspective Uh i don't think that you know any plane manufacturer airline would install like cardiac monitors but Mm -hmm. There could be data retrieved from, you know, watches and smartphones nowadays mm, yeah. that could be used. Like it's already, the data is already being collected by another device that could be, that could be used. And yeah, we will, we will get into that, just some of that in a little bit. Profiling, surveillance, data harvesting. There's lots of things not to like about tech giants, but what can you actually do about it when you rely on so many of their products? We don't all have $44 billion around, you know, to go buy Twitter, but Good news is you don't need to be a billionaire to take a stand for less than $7 per month. You can join me and fight back against big tech using ExpressVPN. How do you think big tech companies like Twitter make all their money anyway? Well, by tracking your searches, video history, and everything you click on, then selling your personal data. ExpressVPN helps you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address, which is a unique identifier that every device has that allows big tech to match your activity back to you. 
Uh, so I use ExpressVPN on all my devices to make it much more difficult for them to exploit my data for their own profits. Best part is how easy it is to use ExpressVPN app. Just one button on my phone, computer to turn it on. That's it. That's all it takes to keep people out of my business. Uh, plus it works on everything. Computer, laptop, phone, tablet, you name it. If you don't like big tech tracking you and selling your personal data for profit, it's time to fight back. Visit expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown right now. Get three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. From cringing at the pump to getting an eye-popping check at your favorite restaurant, inflation is hitting us all where it hurts, and it really hurts. That's why you should start using Upside. Upside's an incredible app for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or dines out. With every purchase, you could be earning cash back thanks to Upside. So right away, I'm going to tell you, get started. Download the free Upside app in the App Store or Google Play. Use our promo code BLACKBOX. Get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. You can just claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside. You just check in at the business, pay as usual with a credit or debit card, and you get paid. That's all there is to it. In comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs, you can earn three times more cash back with Upside. You can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, e-gift card, Amazon, other brands. Uh, Upside users are earning more than a million dollars every week. That's probably why they have a 4.8 star rating on the App Store. So again, make sure you download that free Upside app. Use promo code BLACKBOX to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code BLACKBOX. I love riding a bike. You know, I've been riding a bike for, I've known how to ride a bike for many years, but it could be a lot of work. And let's be honest, I'm a little bit lazy. I don't know about you. So I think the idea of an e-bike is fantastic. It's like all the fun of riding a bike, all the convenience of riding a bike, but way, way easier. <laughs> Less physical effort on my part, as much, you know, as, as much or as little as I want. And finally, there's an e-bike for everyone. Electric e-bikes that the fastest growing e-bike company in the U.S. Easy to see why. Electric e-bikes are affordable, customizable. They ship free, fully assembled. They quickly fold in half. No bike rack or truck required. That's great. That's really super easy to fold them and take them in your car. That's great. Or you can also just leave the car at home. Save on gas, save the planet while you explore and commute on electric e-bikes. It's super fun to ride. Super great. I find myself making any excuse I can to get on my uh, e-bike and ride it around, go somewhere. You know, there's some places that it's easier to get to on my bike than it is on my car. Just I don't have to deal with parking. Just go up. Ride right up to the door, lock it down on a bike rack, walk in, easy. Uh, I don't know where you are, but here in Austin, some places are lousy with parking. So being able to take a bike just like opens up so many more options. And the electric e-bike mission is simple to make e-bikes accessible for everyone. They're surprisingly affordable compared to other e-bikes in the market. They're adjustable, customizable. They're sort of comfortable even for people who don't normally ride bikes. Uh, they're durable. They got a convenient design. Uh, they fold up, ship free, come pre-assembled, pre-charged. You'll be on the road in no time. Seriously, they are really pre-assembled. It's like folded in the box. You unfold it. I think it took me three minutes <laughs> to get it out of the box and uh, have it unfolded and uh, you know be ready to go on the on on the road. And the battery's hidden away. There's an LCD display featuring speed, range, adjustable power level. Thousands of Ray five-star reviews. So join the affordable e-bike revolution. Go to electricebikes.com. Use code BBD, like black box down, get it? Get a free foldable, mountable bike lock with any purchase. That's a free bike lock when you use code BBD at L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-E-S.com. You, you're going to need a, a bike lock anyway, right? When you go and you, you lock it up at a, at a place you're going to, why not get a free one? Let's go to electricebikes.com. Use code BBD. The investigation was carried out by the Romanian Ministry of Transport Civil Aviation Inspectorate. The investigators began reviewing the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, and they think that the captain operated the flight management system with his right hand when the crew received clearance to the STJ waypoint. Remember, I, I said that uh, 
he was inputting, or the first officer asked the captain to input the waypoint into the flight management system. Mm-hmm. That system is in the middle between the pilots. So since the captain's sitting on the left, it would make sense that he would be using his right hand to do that. So because of this, that means that he would have had to have taken his hands off of the engine throttles to do that. Remember, he had had mm-hmm. his hand guarding mm-hmm. the throttles to make sure they were okay. So when he's asked to input the data into the flight management system, he has to take his right hand, which is holding the throttles, off of the engine throttle, uh, and then put it over to the flight management system to input the waypoint. Then the first officer asked for the flaps and slats to be retracted. The flaps were, but the slats were not. And again, the captain would most likely have been using his right hand for this. Mm-hmm. It is presumed that during this, the delay to carry out the order causes the first officer to start to doubt the captain's physical state because he asks, what's wrong with you? You know, at first the flaps are retracted fine. Then yes, for the slats to be retracted, they're not. And then, you know, first officer's flying the plane. Then he asked, you know, (laughs) like, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you do the thing that I just asked you to do? And then the cockpit voice recorder records the sound of what investigators think indicates human pain. Like I said, there's that weird, like, groan-like noise. And investigators believe at this point that the captain actually became incapacitated. He he passed out or something they unfortunately they don't know Mm -hmm. there's no definitive answer to that and the medical records of the crew showed no evidence that they had any kind of disease that would have compromised flight safety Uh and there was no way for them to do an autopsy after the crash so they could never definitively say what happened to the captain but they said you know based on the fact that he stopped responding there Mm -hmm. was that groan the first officer asked what's wrong with you that he may have had some medical, something medical happened yeah. that incapacitated him. And, and how old was he? He was 48, I believe. Okay. So not too... Yeah, he was 48. Yeah, he, he, was, in, he was in good health. Like I said, they reviewed the medical records mm-hmm. and he was in, you know, they, the medical records did not reveal that he was suffering from any conditions. And I don't know about Romania and, you know, the way that they certify pilots over there. But in the United States, if you fly a commercial airliner like this... And if you're over the age of 40, you have to get your first class medical certificate renewed every six months. So you have to go to the doctor every six months and they're going to look at you and they're going to run tests and they're going to make sure that you're still, you know, in good health and that you can, uh, you know, you're qualified to to fly a plane. If you're under 40, it's 12 months, by the way. (laughs) Once once you turn 40, (laughs) they they, they test you a little more frequently. So yeah, just in case you were curious about like how rigorously and how often are, are, are pilots, how often is their health checked? In the United States, it's every six months uh, they have to be uh, examined by uh, a doctor. Anyway, back to the back to the incident. Mm-hmm. While you know this was going on, the first officer did not observe the thrust difference, probably because he was relying on the briefing that determined the captain would monitor the engines. Then the first officer became preoccupied with you know determining the state of the captain, mm-hmm. splitting his attention between the aircraft and you know the captain who was sitting there with him. Yeah. The first officer then requested for the autopilot to be engaged. Investigators believe that the captain not carrying out this command confirmed that the captain was incapacitated. But since the captain didn't engage mm-hmm. the autopilot and it was the first officer that the captain must have been unable to do anything. However, the autopilot was engaged for about one second and then disengaged itself. Investigators believe the first officer looked away from his primary flight display because he thought the autopilot was on. Oh. So he hits the autopilot to then turn and help the captain, but the autopilot disengages and he doesn't realize it. And that's when the airplane reaches, it keeps banking, it reached a bank angle of uh, 57 degrees. Does it not make any sort of noise or indicate? What's the indication whenever it turns off the autopilot? It does. There's an audible noise that lets you know, but uh-huh. he was probably so freaked out that the captain was 
hurt or something was wrong with the yeah. captain that he didn't notice. He was, you know, just in a distracted state. Then, you know, after they reach this bank angle of 57 degrees, the aircraft dramatically changes attitude, but the first officer's maneuvers and the control service positions cannot be explained based on the data and elements available. So, I mean, the big question, of course, is what caused this thrust asymmetry? Why is it that the number one engine on the left side started reducing power while the engine on the right side kept giving uh, regular power? So the investigators start looking into the auto throttle system, which, you know, like we said, they were using. It's a very common system. Mm -hmm. They look into the logbook for the plane and they found a briefing card that said, after takeoff, during climb, engine number one may go back to idle when switching from thrust to climb power. <laughs> so, I mean, that's pretty damning. It's, it's uh -huh. weird, right? It's like, huh, weird. The, the, the engine number one stopped giving power. Let's look in the logbook and see what it says. And there's a little card in there that said, it's, basically, it's like writing a little asterisk, like, warning, <laughs> engine one may go idle while you're taking off. And this is just this plane, not... Right. Okay. It's specific in this plane. So there's this... They, other people flying it had been like, yeah, every once in a while it kind of goes idle. And they just right. said, hey, if you're flying it, like, pay attention, you know? Right, exactly. And the reason this card was in there is, like you said, there were other crews who had complained in the logbook starting from May 28th, 1994. And they all complained oh. that the engine number one throttle would go back to idle for some unknown reason when switching from takeoff to climb power. Because, you know, as when you're doing takeoff you have mm -hmm. um, a lot more power than climb. Takeoff is like, you can think of it as like maximum power. Yeah. Then once you take off and you start climbing, you reduce the power a little bit. So in making that change from the takeoff profile to the climb profile, the left engine may go all the way back to idle. Oh, so it's like, it like instead of, yeah, just slowing down, it just shuts off. Well, yeah, not all the way shut off, uh, but yeah, idle. Yeah. So after several maintenance actions in accordance with the troubleshooting manual and other actions uh, according to operators' experience, no future complaints were recorded from August 1994 to March 16th, 1995. Maybe there weren't any other complaints because they already knew that. It, like They're like, well, yeah, it's a known thing. Yeah, I mean, you, it you know could what I mean? be. Uh, I think at this point, the, the that briefing card might not have been in the plane yet. Oh, okay. I think the card is in there as a result of all this. But, you know, the, the problem is because... This malfunction is so random, the mechanics can't reproduce it on the ground. You know, it's like the thing where you take your car to the mechanic, you're like, it's doing this thing, and you, they're like, <laughs> it, it doesn't do uh -huh. it in front of them. And they're like, yeah. I swear, it's acting weird when I'm driving. Yeah. It's kind of like that. So they go ahead and, you know, they, they make this briefing card, and they put it in the aircraft log to warn of the possible recurrence of the malfunction. From the aircraft history records obtained from the FAA, evidence showed that a series of similar malfunctions have been reported during the aircraft operation by Delta Airlines. So this plane actually used to be owned by Delta, and then Delta got rid of it, and mm -hmm. Tarim purchased it, or got it. The corrective actions performed by Delta maintenance staff were those included in the troubleshooting manual and identical to those performed by Tarim. During the last 25 hours of the flight data recorder, the malfunction happened one other time on March 30th, 1995, and was not reported by the crew in the logbook. So that's kind of like what you're saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At this point, they're like, yeah, this happens. <laughs> yeah, so it's just um, like they don't even make a note of it. Mm -hmm. So like I said, this plane did used to be owned by Delta. And before this aircraft was delivered to Tarim, it followed Delta's maintenance schedule. And before it was approved by the Romanian Civil Aviation Authority, the aircraft was serviced by uh, Swissair in Zurich because Tarim and Swissair had a technical cooperation agreement. Not that unusual. Happens. Mm -hmm. 
Interim was responsible for the line maintenance and troubleshooting, while Swissair was responsible for the base maintenance, engineering, and all other maintenance aspects. The analysis of technical documentation for when it was operated by Tarim showed that all maintenance tasks were performed in compliance with the provisions of the approved maintenance schedule. All approved lives for the aircraft, engine, and their components were observed. The aircraft maintenance manual and troubleshooting manual were updated and followed mandations and airworthiness directives and service bulletins applicable until the date of the accident had been performed. All of that's to say all of the maintenance was done correctly. There was no like... Cost cutting, you know, we talk about some of these incidents where uh-huh. they're like, yeah, well, the airline was in financial trouble, so uh-huh. they decided <laughs> they weren't going to do maintenance anymore. Like, that did not happen here. All of the maintenance was on schedule. Everything was fine. If they did all the maintenance, then what was the process of getting that, you know, idle engine fixed or figured out? Like, I mean, beyond, like you said, they couldn't, they didn't know how to replicate it. But like, what, how do you, do you get that fixed if you can't replicate it on the ground and you don't know what it is? Right. I mean, that's. That's an excellent question, you know, because we always talk about how all of this is very checklist based, mm-hmm. manual based. It's like you go through the entire manual and the problem still keeps happening. So then you're like, well, now what? The manual doesn't cover it. So I think, you know, at this point, they're trying to figure out what's causing it. They're like, you know, we'll warn people who are flying it and then maybe we can get more. This I'm just saying this is their thinking uh-huh. at the time. Maybe we can get more data that'll help mm. us figure out what it is that's causing this. Okay. That's what I would have, if I had to guess, that's most likely what they're doing at this point. That's why they put the card in the logbook and they try to make crews aware of this. Hmm. We will talk a little more about, <laughs> about specifically <laughs> about that. I, d- I don't want to get too far ahead of myself though. So due to the high integration of the maintenance activity, the logbook system is similar to the one used by Swissair. According to procedure approved by Tarum, If a deficiency cannot be properly corrected before the next flight and the minimum equipment list stipulates that the corrective action can be postponed for a limited period of time, it is transferred to a hold item list in the aircraft log. So they cannot definitively fix it and they, you know, their their checklists say they can postpone it for a little bit of time. They put it on a special list, the hold item list. Okay. The hold item list is specifically placed at the front of the aircraft log and when the deficiency is corrected, it must be deleted. So it's like, at the very top of the log, there's this alert, and that's you know where this uh, this entry about the idle engine is found. Uh-huh. Based on this procedure, the maintenance personnel issue a briefing card in order to draw the crew's attention to the issue. In this respect, a briefing card was issued and maintained in the aircraft log in order to warn the crew against the possibility that some intermittent deficiency might appear in the autothrottle system. In conformity with agreements, copies of the aircraft log pages have been transmitted to both Airbus and Swissair on a continuous basis. So... Again, they were following procedures. You know, you make this special card that draws attention at the very front of the logbook at the top that warns you about this uh, potential ongoing issue. So kind of to get back to the question you asked a little while ago uh-huh. about w- what do you do when you can't fix this problem that you're trying to troubleshoot? So it turns out Airbus, who's the manufacturer of the A310, they were aware of these auto throttle system malfunctions before this accident. Airbus was aware of similar malfunctions of the auto throttle system of A300s and A310s, some of which were earlier than the manufacturer of the accident aircraft. So they'd had this incident in other planes that had been manufactured mm. before this one. The defects in the auto throttle system were either the jamming of both throttles and the disconnection of the auto throttle system, or one throttle moving to idle while the other remained above climb power without auto throttle disconnection. The most probable cause of these malfunctions has been the excessive friction and the kinematic linkages between the throttles and the auto throttle system coupling units. So you can just think of it as like friction, parts rubbing together, uh-huh. causing this error. Until this accident, Airbus only issued service information letters and technical follow-ups about the issue. 
These documents contained four recommended actions to prevent the occurrence of these malfunctions. Two of these recommendations did not have relevance to this accident, and the report actually does not go into detail about these. Okay. A third one was already in effect in this aircraft, and the last recommendation, which was to replace the throttle lever bearings in case of a seizure, had not been carried out in this aircraft. Another of these documents informs about a modification of the throttle lever roller to prevent wear and system anomalies. Until this accident, the actions suggested by Airbus had not been formalized in service bulletin form to correct the configuration. At the time of the accident, the flight crew operating manual issued by Airbus did not include a standard operational procedure to cope with the consequences of the auto throttle system modifications. However, the aircraft operational manual in force at the time of the accident issued by Swissair and used by Tarum includes a recommended procedure for initial climb to verify the automatic thrust change from takeoff to climb. And the assisting pilot was to guard the throttles until climb thrust setting has been verified. So all, I know that was a big old mouthful. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay. So... I'll summarize it. Uh So Airbus had issued four corrective actions to take in relation to this. Two of them didn't apply to this plane. They had done, they had performed one on this plane. They had not performed the fourth, but there was no like formal service bulletin yet. There was no formal, like you must do this stuff. We've talked about incidents like Mm -hmm. this before where it's kind of like an alert, like, hey, these may be problems. These are things you can do if you see these problems, but there was no formalized, hey, you must address these problems uh, alert issued to airlines yet. However, like all that being said, it seems like, you know, Swissair and Tarim were aware of these potential issues. Uh-huh. And that's why they had their manual about how to fly the plane included the phrase that I said there at the end. The assisting pilot was to guard the throttles until climb thrust setting had been verified. So mm. that's why the captain said he was going to keep his hand on the throttles during the climb. It, it was just in case of this problem. Okay. But the captain had yeah. a heart, like he got a heart attack or had some other problem right so airbus airline they were aware this was a possibility but then you know you have to add the human factor here like presumably the captain either became incapacitated or passed away or something happened and then like that final safety mechanism which was a person was no longer there yeah but then the uh first officer should have been able to recover it right but he was just too distracted with the the captain right right? that that's Uh, yeah presumably what what correct up. what what person should be able to fly that plane mm-hmm. uh and they're trained to fly that plane you know yeah. either the captain or the first officer can fly the plane no problem it's just you know the the captain became sick or passed out or something happened to him the first officer thought he engaged the autopilot turned to help the captain autopilot disengaged mm. the first officer didn't notice that one engine had rolled back to idle and the other one was you know giving full thrust still you know and then by the time he realizes it it's, you know, presumably too late because they're so low in the clouds. He can't see the horizon. That's another thing. So, you know, he turns to look at the captain. Mm. If it was a clear day and he, you know, he could still see out and see the ground through the windows, he'd be like, oh, no, something's wrong. I need to turn back to my attention to the plane. But because they're in a cloud, it, you know, he can't see anything outside. He doesn't know what state the plane's in. Yeah, and I know we've talked about this in other episodes, but how disorienting it can be. Like, you don't know where down is and what up is right i mean it's right it, it seems like i know it's uh, when you hear it it sounds like so crazy like how could he not know that they were rolling how could he not know what was up and what was down it's like it's really really difficult to tell that's why you have to rely on your instruments but of course he's not looking at the instruments he's looking at the captain because mm-hmm. he thinks autopilot's taken over and just a cash he can't see just a casual glance outside because they're in clouds there's no way there's no frame of reference yeah 
So during the period the aircraft had been registered in the United States, before having been leased by Terum, there was no evidence that the aircraft had undergone a flight incident. The auto throttle system deficiency had not been noted during test flight for the airworthiness certification of the aircraft, and Terum knew nothing of this type of deficiency, which had never occurred on its own A310 aircraft. So the way it can be read here is that if it did happen, it had not been noted. They had not written mm-hmm. down that this was a potential issue. And then Terum knew nothing of this kind of deficiency because it had, this had never happened on any of its own A310 aircraft. So I guess the, the takeaway here is Terum receives this plane with no notation that this is a possibility and they're not expecting it because this has not happened on any of the other A310s it already has. And then that update that, you know, that, oh, this, the fix for it that had been released, like where is that, how's that information disseminated and had they gotten that? Uh, Yeah. uh, So remember they had a a maintenance agreement with Swiss Air. Okay. And, you know, Airbus issued what they call service information letters and those do go out to maintenance people. And that's why, you know, presumably some of these steps had been done on this plane. Uh, they had been working through it. Uh, however, it wasn't like... Yeah, it was the not not urgent. Right. It was not flagged as like the urgent kind of maintenance that needs to be done. So that's why they kind of kept putting it off on the whole list and still troubleshooting it. I think if if it had come out as a service bulletin or an airworthiness directive, well, I don't know how they, what, what it's called in Europe, but the equivalent of an airworthiness mm-hmm. directive, then uh, yeah, uh, they, they would have most likely have taken care of that immediately. But it was a, it was just one of those ongoing nagging issues that you know they, they probably just learned learned to deal with. Yeah. Well, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal normally, right? Right. It's just yeah. like oh, whoop, you gotta push it. Yeah. Normally, push someone's it. hand is right there. Yeah. They feel it coming back, and then there's like oh nope, there you go, right back yeah. where you go. You know, it's just like a quick correction, not really a serious issue. You know, maybe mm-hmm. just a fraction of a second or a second or two of lower thrust, if that. Yeah. So. You know, we get to the findings here for this accident. From all aircraft systems, the only one that can be considered to have a direct implication on the accident is the auto throttle system, which makes sense. History of reported auto throttle system random malfunction occurrences for this plane started with the previous operator of the aircraft. So this leads you to believe that this issue had happened with Delta. They just hadn't been noting it uh, mm. in their um, in their logs. Is there any reason why they wouldn't? It might be because they were aware of this issue and it was just mm. like, oh yeah, you got, you just got to deal with this. It's just, you know, a dumb, dumb thing with this plane. The kind of malfunction that occurred during the previous flight was not reported. Airbus had information about the occurrence of this type of deficiency in the auto throttle system on A300s and A310s constructed before 1986, which made it issue documents recommending remedy measures. So like I said, this had been kind of an ongoing issue with other planes and they've been kind of working on it. Okay. The technical measures recommended by Airbus for the elimination of the deficiency have been integrated in the construction process of new aircraft without being extended to aircraft already in operation through a mandatory service bulletin. So kind of saying that once Airbus, the manufacturer, realized this problem, they started manufacturing the new planes so that this wouldn't happen with them. But there was no mandatory service bulletin to go back and retroactively fix the ones that already were in product or already in use, I should say. Tarim never encountered this deficiency until the operation of this airplane. Again, like I said, they had other A310s, but this was the first one they'd had where this was an incident or this was an issue. Until the accident occurred, there had been no aircraft maintenance manual and troubleshooting manual provisions concerning this type of deficiency and its troubleshooting. The altitude that corresponds to climb power thrust setting was reached when the captain, probably, was inputting the air traffic control clearance into the flight management system. This led him to leave the throttles unattended. So again, it's like... 
on top of the captain being incapacitated, it was also like really bad timing. Like this started happening when he took his hand. He was still mm. responsive. He took his hands off the throttle to do other things. Oh, yeah. And that's exactly when this started happening. You know, he was still like if it had happened a couple seconds earlier when his hand was when he was still responsive and his hands were still on the throttle, this could have been avoided. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like it's just such a strange yeah. time for it to happen. And we talk about that a lot where it's like this weird, I don't want to say perfect, you know, sequence of events, but like the opposite of that. Yeah. It's you like, know, it's the, like all these things line up to cause uh, this issue. And, and you mean if you want to talk about like it was also a cloudy day, if it had been a clear mm. day. Maybe the first officer would have noticed, you know, something was wrong when he was looking at the captain. I was like, all all of these little things, like there's no way to have, you know, accounted for all of that. It's 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 crazy if you stop and like really think about yeah. every single little thing that contributes to it. Because initially, whenever you first went over, it's like, oh, it seems crazy that the the plane went down because uh, presumably the captain had some sort of health issue, but it wasn't just, there's all mm -hmm. these little things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, also I said at the beginning, some people on the ground said they reported seeing an explosion on the plane. That's like another part of the uh, investigation that we really didn't touch on, but that, you know, we hear a lot, you know, eyewitness accounts of what they see can be very unreliable, especially when it comes to planes. There was no mm -hmm. explosion on the plane, but there were multiple people on the ground who said they saw the plane explode in the air. Who knows why that is? That didn't happen. Well, that's happened. We, we've talked about other cases where there people saw things that didn't happen, you know, explosions right. or whatever, smoke or something. Yeah. So it's really, it's really strange how your mind can play tricks on you and make you think you see things that weren't really there or you misinterpret what you do see. Well, if you see a plane nosediving, you might think it'd be like, well, why is it? Was there an explosion? You know, like, right. Like you might, your brain might try and draw conclusions that didn't actually happen. Right. It's like filling in those blanks. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Anyway, back to the findings here. Um, the first officer was not aware from the beginning of the thrust asymmetry development. You know, of course, if he had noticed, he mm -hmm. probably would have quickly fixed that. It doesn't take a lot of work to fix that. And at a certain moment, the first officer lost control of the aircraft. That's a weird finding to me, but um, <laughs> okay, he, he was on there. And of course, there's a couple of uh, causes that led to this incident. Of course, there's thrust asymmetry, possible pilot incapacitation. They can't say that definitively. That's why they keep saying possible pilot incapacitation. Yeah. It seems pretty much like it was, but you know how these reports go. Like they want everything 100% explained. You know, they have to say possible pilot incapacitation, uh, even though it seems like most likely he had a heart attack or some medical condition that either incapacitated or killed him or something happened. Uh, and then the last cause is insufficient corrective action from the first officer in mm -hmm. order to cover the consequences of the first factors. The plane just got away from him, just got out of control. Yeah. In 30 seconds. Yeah. Right. And by the time he, in 30 seconds from the time he yeah. looked away to the time they hit the ground. Like, yeah. So really, it was just a couple of seconds to maybe recover it and save it. An interesting side note I want to say real fast. You know, I said that, you know, the, you know, when they were nosediving, the engines were pulled to idle, which may seem like kind of counterintuitive. But, you know, when you're nose down like that, you want your engines to go idle. That way you don't keep increasing your speed at the ground. Oh, yeah. You know, Gravity is pulling you down and increasing your speed anyway. You can use that. You can trade that energy uh -huh. to, for uh, for altitude and pull out of it. You know, if your engines are on too, you risk going too fast, like overspeeding, which we've mm -hmm. talked about, or, you know, decreasing the amount of time you have to recover. Uh, just a little footnote. So after the accident, Airbus issued two mandatory service bulletins concerning remedy measures to be taken by all operators for elimination of all probable causes of this malfunction. So that's what you want to hear. Like, 
the thing that they had suggested as a maintenance item before was now a mandatory mm. service bulletin. Like, hey, you've got to <laughs> fix this. Amendments to the aircraft maintenance manual and troubleshooting manual have been issued by Airbus after the accident and sent to operators for adequate updating of the technical documentation. So, I mean, you could say, I think the easy thing to say here is they probably should have done this immediately, way sooner. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were financial considerations that they worried about, you know, airlines having to do all this work and, you know, planes being out of service. But in the end, you we want people to be safe. You want, yeah. you know, that's why aviation is so safe because the level of care that needs to be taken is so high. In March 1995, a criminal investigation was started by the prosecutor's office attached to the Bucharest Tribunal with the objective of, of establishing the circumstances of the air crash. In 1997, the case was transferred from the prosecutor's office attached to the Bucharest Tribunal to the prosecutor's office attached to the Bucharest Court of Appeal because lack of legal competence. <laughs> you never want to hear that. Ooh. Since then, the case remains unsolved, and in 2008, at the request of the Prosecutor General, Laura uh, Covesi, it has been revealed that the case files are completely missing. What? What? Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm as baffled as you are. They don't have any of the case files anymore. So they opened a criminal investigation. Uh-huh. A second office took over saying that the first office was incompetent. And then, you know, 11 years later, they're like, oh, yeah, we lost the, all the files. Oh, my God. That's what, I have no idea, Chris. I, I, don't, I don't even know where to begin with that. <laughs> so was it just one of those things that are like, oh, we'll get the, they just kept delaying it and then. So I don't know, someone moved to a new job or something and then they lost the, f I don't know. That's crazy. Could be. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I have no way to explain that. It's, it's really bizarre. And, uh, you know, there is a monument dedicated to the memory of the ones who perished in this accident. It's located in the vicinity of the crash site. So that would be, you know, pretty close to the, uh, Bucharest airport in Romania. I've always wanted to visit Bucharest. Really? Yeah, I think it'd be cool. I'd, I'd love. To, I'd, there's a lot of places in Eastern Europe I'd like to visit. Bucharest is uh, is up there. I don't mean that like Bucharest. It's like, why would you? No, just like it's. But it's just. It it's doesn't seem unique, like a tourist destination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not like oh, it's always been on my bucket list. Yeah. Yeah, on, on my bucket list. Bucharest. Book a rest list. Oh, anyway, anyway, uh, that's it for this episode <laughs> of uh, Black Box Down. Uh, don't forget, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. And if you'd like to listen to the episodes ad free uh, and early, you can check out blackboxdownpod.com. $2.99 a month. You, like I said, you get them ad free, you get them early. You keep listening in whatever podcast platform you already listen to. If you listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you probably already see. The button you can do it in app there. And it supports us. It directly supports us. Blackboxdownpod.com. There's uh, some uh, frequently asked questions that are answered there. Uh, we'd appreciate it. Yeah. I have a question. What? Of all the uh, episodes we've done, is this the first one where the pilot or first officer had like an unknown health thing? Just, huh. I'm trying to um, think. I, I believe this is the first time we've talked about where a pilot becomes incapacitated during flight i want to say yes this is the first time okay. that's happened yeah it seems like one of those things that you i don't know you would be more worried about like i don't know just like without thinking about it but it's it hasn't come up very much at all so that's why i was like well i mean normally like we said the 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 medical clearances for pilots is very rigorous you know so they're going to catch any potential health issues before you get to this point mm -hmm. and even mundane things that happen on a plane are in place to prevent both pilots from becoming incapacitated. Like I'm sure you've heard that in the cockpit, when the pilots eat, the two pilots cannot eat the same meal. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I think we, I think we've talked yeah, about that. Yeah, just in case like 
there's something wrong with one of the meals or there's food poisoning or, you know, it's like mm-hmm. if one of them gets, you know, one meal, the other one has to get the other one. Uh, just, just to be safe because it did happen one time. <laughs> like food poisoning? Both, both pilots got food poisoning oh. from the same meal. That's why nowadays both pilots cannot have the same meal <laughs> anymore. They, how do you think they determine that? Sorry, this is completely off. Like, Wait, that, that's a whole other thing. Maybe we could have like a supplemental bonus episode about that. That That's a whole other thing that's really interesting, I think. But yeah, we're, we're done for that. That's it. We're done with Tarim 371 right now. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Or we, we'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Bye.